Before the episode begins, I'd like to tell you about the Science for Care podcast. Science for Care is an audio series produced by HealthTech for Care, an endowment fund committed to support and promote access to care for all patients. Each episode takes a concise look at some of the major advances in medicine, mRNA vaccines, antibiotics, gene therapy, the metaverse, and many more. The production is meticulous, the narration captivating, and the guests are true leaders in their respective fields. If you listen to Impulse, then you'll be for sure interested, so don't wait any longer and go listen to the first two seasons of Science for Care. Crystal has a very simple mission, saving lives. And if we look just at trauma care, every single day there are 5,900 people that die from traumatic bleeding because either we're not able to get to them quickly enough or, or there isn't an adequate problem or a product to be able to stop that bleeding. And what our technologies do is it takes what would take five plus minutes with standard of care technology to stop a bleed, it allows you to reduce that window to about two and a half seconds, which means that that bleeding stops instantly. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where we dive into the most exciting breakthroughs in healthcare of our time. In each episode, I sit down with some of the most brilliant minds that are using technology to rethink the way we care. Inspiring and passionate to tell you all about their innovation and how it will impact the lives of millions. My name is Matthew Chafford. I'm a biomedical engineer and medical technology enthusiast. And in this podcast, we take the pulse of this incredible field. Welcome to Impulse. Hello, Joe, and welcome to Impulse. I'm very excited to have you on the show. I've really, really enjoyed diving into your background and, and your activities at Crescent while preparing the episode. Um, as the listeners will discover in a moment, it's it's all about a new approach to controlling and stopping bleeding, or in technical terms, a, a whole new type of hemostatics, as we call such compounds in medicine. We are recording the episode in October 2023, um, and we don't need to look far in, in the current news to understand the stakes and the importance of having efficient solutions to control and to stop bleeding. We're in a rather dark period um, where the world is crippled by a series of humanitarian catastrophes, some of natural origin, some of human origin. So I'm, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to discuss with you about what you've developed with your team from the ground up, because these are the kinds of achievements that I that I try to convey through the podcast, um, as they genuinely make me hopeful about the future and what we can achieve as humans. So I, I hope I didn't kill the mood. I, as mentioned, I'm really curious and grateful for this opportunity to learn from you about this medical innovation. And before we go into the nitty gritty of it, would you like to present yourself? Of course. And first, I just want to say thank you so much for, for having me join you today. It's an absolute pleasure. and I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Uh, but just to introduce myself very briefly, my, my name is Joe Lendelina. I am the CEO of Crestalon, which is a company that I founded 13 years ago to bring our products that stop bleeding both in animal health and in human health to market. And I'm a chemical engineer by training. So I did my, my work here in New York, uh, both undergrad and graduate work at NYU in chemical engineering. Great. So um, while preparing the episode and, and looking into your background, I, I was both impressed and, and positively shocked to see that you founded Cresilon the, the same year you started college. I guess for most students like I was, we were, we were more going into college hoping that we end up, you know, finding a job down the line. And I haven't met many students who start university and at the same time found their own company. I think 
I mean, for me, I didn't, I did not even know if, uh, or I probably didn't know what the term entrepreneurship meant back in the days. Um, how did that happen? And how did you know that you wanted to start a venture in, in such a specific field as the medical industry and especially hemostatics? Sure. Uh, so, so to start with, I, I had no intention whatsoever to start a company. Uh, so when when I founded Cresselon, I was doing so because I was pre-med. I, I wanted to be a surgeon okay. and I was looking to gain some experience that would hopefully help me get into a better medical school. Uh, and so uh, going back to the beginning, we uh, I, I was very lucky as a kid. My grandfather was a, an executive at Hoffman La Roche, which is a big pharmaceutical company. Yeah. And when he retired from Roche, he decided to take a bit of a left turn and he opened a vineyard. And so I grew up on a vineyard with a chemistry lab across the street from my house. And a grandfather had learned lab safety in the 60s. And that, that meant the day that I learned how to walk, I was basically thrown into a lab with my grandfather and told, make some things together, don't kill yourself, kid. And, uh, and so it was a very unorthodox introduction to this. And so, but I, I got a really early exposure to this sort of uh, of chemical lab safety and then lab research. And because of uh, my parents insisting on me doing safer and safer experiments over the years, I got really good at plant-based chemistries, things that I can go out and find in nature. And that led to me at a very young age, discovering the precursor to Vetagel, which is our, our product that stops bleeding. It's made from two polymers, basically sugars that come out of algae and instantly stop bleeding when, when you put it into contact bleeding wound. And so at 17, I didn't want to start a company. I just wanted to enter this idea that I thought was interesting into a competition with the hopes of getting an internship that summer. Uh, and we turned it, we won. And so that gave us just enough capital to start building. And we realized as we got deeper and deeper into this, that bleeding is a massive problem and, and that current technologies had limited ability to be able to solve those challenges and then we were uniquely positioned to help uh, and so we found a Cresselon based on that that's awesome like first like uh, it's funny so your grandfather works worked in the same company where i was where i worked at the moment so i hope that when i go into the rent i also do wine and <laughs> and the other thing was that uh, so you were you started the company in the first year of your studies and then you continuously like basically you completed your degree while at the same time running the company I did. I, I may not have been the best student near the end, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I did do both at the same time. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's impressive. So, because I was like, hey, did Joe finish his curriculum or did he have to withdraw? But no, that's, that's impressive. Um, so can you maybe, you know, shifting gears towards the company and, you know, what, 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 can you tell us what's your mission with, with Cresselon? Sure. So Cresselon has a very simple mission, saving lives. And if we look just at trauma care, Every single day, there are 5,900 people that die from traumatic bleeding because either we're not able to get to them quickly enough or, or there isn't an adequate problem or a product to be able to stop that bleeding. Uh, and so this isn't just a problem in trauma. It's also a problem in the surgical space, whether we're talking in, in dogs yeah. and cats or in people. Every single time an incision is made, there's bleeding. And the longer it takes to stop that bleeding, the longer the patient stays on the table in the operating room. The longer the patient's on the table, the more anesthesia, so the higher the cost and the greater the risk for that patient. So there's a huge need in being able to stop bleeding quickly. And what our technologies do is it takes what would take five plus minutes with standard of care technology to stop a bleed. It allows you to reduce that window to about two and a half seconds. Um, and so the way that we do that is we take two polymers or long chains of sugar that come out of algae. We build it into a gel 
and you can put that gel directly onto whatever is bleeding. So in a, in a trauma case, let's say we have a lacerated jugular vein, which is a, a massive blood vessel in yeah. the neck. And that type of bleed would be lethal in under three minutes. But you can take a product like Betagel, apply it topically. So you squirt it out of the syringe, you put it onto that bleeding wound. And nearly instantly, as soon as the product comes into contact, it creates a mechanical barrier against bleeding, which means that that bleeding stops instantly. And then it allows the patient to produce their own clot underneath. Uh, so after some time, you can peel it off. And what you see is there's a jugular vein that has now been effectively rebuilt, meaning the patient is a clot underneath. And, and uh, anyone who's interested, uh, we have lots of videos on our YouTube channel. So if you go to Cresselon's YouTube channel and search Vetagel or Trauma Gel, you can see these yourself. But that being said, uh, this product uh, does really amazing things. Uh, today in animal health, it's been used in over 45,000 patients in yeah. everything from gunshot wounds and stabbings to neurosurgery and everything in between. Oh, that's, that's incredible. And maybe just to give us a perspective. So what were before, you know, before that product came, came out? And I think now there's even like an indication for an initial indication for, for, for human use, but what were like, you know, best in class hemostatics before that came up or, you know, what was the point of comparison before? So the, uh, obviously products that have stopped bleeding have been around for, for centuries at this point, right? And, and we, in New York, uh, the, the, the oldest method of stopping bleeding, we lovingly call pressure and a prayer, uh, which is <laughs> you put a finger on the bleed and, and, and you wait for it to stop. Uh, and, and so that, that's been around since the, since the beginning of time. Uh, but beyond that, uh, there are lots of gauzes and powders and impregnated uh, materials uh, that allow you to try to harness uh, the body's own clotting cascade. And, and that takes somewhere in the range of seven minutes to get bleeding under control if it works at all. Uh, and then in the human space, uh, these aren't available in animal health because of cost. Uh, but there are more advanced hemostatics that use drugs like thrombin or fibrin in order to drive that reaction forward biochemically. And uh, those products are very expensive. They're, they're $200 plus, could be upwards of $1,000 per application, uh, but they work faster. Uh, they, they, work, uh, they, they have to be prepared, so it takes about three minutes to prep them and then two minutes uh, before they work. Uh, but beyond that, this is just uh, something that comes out of algae that can be delivered economically. It costs $40 to the veterinarian here in the U.S., uh, and it works nearly instantly. And so it, it, it's been a game changer for the surgeons who use it. Yeah, no, that's really awesome. And um, you, you've so you've touched on already a bit in, on the, let's say, the, the science and the functioning behind the, the, the barrier material that you developed. Um, so you mentioned that the, the gel is composed of two polymers that are of uh, vegetal um, origin. How do you, could you explain to us in a bit more detail, you know, where does this ability to stop bleeding within seconds comes from? You mentioned that there is, uh, it's creating a, a mechanical barrier. Um, and, you know, what are some of the biological processes at play that make, make, the, make it so efficient in a way? Of course. And so what we're doing is we're effectively making a really good glue. And so if you were to take Vetagel and put it under a microscope, uh, what you wouldn't see is just a homogeneous mixture, right? Meaning uh, that instead of it being one piece, it's actually a gel with a bunch of little crystals that are suspended within that gel. Uh, and, and that's sort of like, I like to use the example of converting cement into concrete. And so the, the Romans, when they invented concrete, they realized that if you took cement and you threw a bunch of twigs and sticks and rocks into it, logically, you would think that 
that would end up reducing the strength of that mixture. But instead, those little bits of twigs and, and rocks actually reinforce the mixture and, and make it much stronger so it doesn't crack and fracture. And so what we are, what we end up with is a material that has a few different characteristics. So the first of which is that it is highly ionically charged, uh, meaning that the polymers that make up the gel have lots of little electric charges along the uh, along the, the backbone of these polymers. And what do charges do? They let you stick to tissue really well. They let you stick to the patient. And then the second thing is because of that, uh, that crystallinity within the gel or that reinforcement that we have, when it sticks, it allows the gel to withstand the pressure of even an arterial bleed. And so you kind of create this sort of concrete holding back the blood. Now, the next step uh, is really the most elegant of, uh, of all of the processes that the gel does uh, because it's pretty simple. Uh, and what we do is the gel acts from that point forward as a scaffold, sort of like the scaffolding on the side of a building, where it allows the patient to produce their own fiber, their own blood clot next to it. But most importantly, Vetagel is non-porous, meaning that there, there's no liquid from the patient that absorbs into the gel or vice versa. And so I'm sure you've had this where you cut yourself shaving, you put toilet paper on it. And then eventually the toilet paper either falls off or you pull it off. And you're bleeding again because you look at the toilet paper and, and the clot that formed is on the toilet paper. Why does that happen? Because the clot wraps around the fibers of the toilet paper. It ends up getting into the pores of that. And so if you peel it off, it comes off with it. With better gel, you have no porosity. So when that clot forms, if the gel gets taken off, the clot stays behind. Um, and so all of that comes together to shrink what used to be a five to seven minute process uh, to something that that's quite a bit more instant. Oh, that's 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 really awesome. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I we recorded an episode. I think it was back to episode eighteen with someone called um, Sami Ornzain. He's the the CEO of a company called Haya Therapeutics, and they're basically um, leveraging the non-coding part of the genome to come up with new um, new therapies for heart failure. And um, so we talked about fibrosis and we talked about um, scarring. And so I was wondering in terms of scarring um, when we think about your solution, is this less likely to leave scar tissue than using um, a simple bandage for, in for instance or more traditional methods or and maybe yeah and is there any added benefit in terms of you know recovering functions like sweating, body temperature control or hair growth because when we have a scar, these are also hindered in a way. Definitely. So, so what I'll say is that Cresselon's materials, uh, we've been focusing almost entirely on hemostasis, uh, just because I, I believe that as, as a founder operator, uh, the, the main goal is, is keeping your focus, laser focused on what's delivering revenue in the short term. Um, and so today we can't make any claims on things like wound healing or, or faster regeneration. Uh, but what I will say is that that's, that's an area of great interest of ours. And uh, there's no reason why at least the format of our material wouldn't lend itself to to something like that. Uh, because if you can allow that patient to produce a better ordered fibrin patch, that's just the yeah. first step of healing. And being able to do it faster and be, being able to do it better theoretically could lend itself to better effects, but that that's to be determined. Uh, we'd have to run those studies. Yeah, because I had the thought I was looking at, uh, uh, I'm going back to, I studied, I mean, biomedical engineering, I think there was probably a course at some point where we learned about the, the scarring mechanism. I look, I, I went back at it and then, you know, it's it's basically we 
there is like a disruption in the extrusional matrix, which is the medical scaffold, the mechanical scaffold that you refer to. And, you know, when it gets grouped together back to form a scar, it's basically unorganized uh, extracellular matrix, which explains why the look is a bit different. Uh, you lose some of the other functions. So I imagine that if you enable in a better way the restoration of the of the matrix, those types of positive consequences would come up. So very, very curious to to see, you know, um, if those studies come out at some point, what what comes up, uh, what comes out of them. Um, I was uh, wondering about uh, the application of the gel. So you mentioned that, you know, we, you just apply it to the site and you leave it. Um, like how long does it need to stay applied? Um, how is it being cleared from the site? Um, after how long? Um, th those kind of like practical questions. Sure. And so in the case of Vetter gel, uh, the surgeon has two options. So the first of which is once the clot forms underneath, and that's highly variable because Vetagel is used across multiple species, so dogs, cats, whales, dolphins, exotic animals, birds, uh, and and so again, very dependent on the on the biology of the patient. Uh, but once that clot is formed, and likely that, that that's after a couple of minutes, it can be removed in its entirety. Uh, but more commonly, because the gel is just made out of sugar, it could actually be left in the patient. And so it, it'll break down over time into, into constituent sugars. And so what happens more often with Vetagel is the excess Vetagel is removed. You leave just enough to hold the uh, hold the material there or hold the blood. Uh, and then you can sew right over it uh, and, and leave it right in the patient. And uh, so that makes it very easy. So you're not waiting around for, for full removal. Yeah. So it's not like any excess of it is, you know, toxic if it remains inside the body, it gets like naturally eliminated. And it's not like creating a huge... Uh, basically like, yeah, a clot that is the size of the remnants from from the gel, right? Exactly. I mean, that's one of the beauties of Vetagel. And, and in fact, it's also one of the things where a new surgeon who's using the product for the first time, this is where the training is focused because Vetagel only works exactly where you put it. And so it won't propagate clots a far distance. Uh, it, it only works if you have it directly in contact with the thing that you want to stop bleeding. Um, and that's great from a safety perspective, uh, but if you don't apply it to the thing that's bleeding, it's not going to stop anything. Uh, and so sometimes uh, that, that takes a little bit of, uh, of getting getting used to. Understood. And so for now, you only have like a standard size for the, the syringes that you guys produce. And I, I imagine if you go into other indications later on where you potentially need, you know, more, um, I mean, either you use multiple ones of these syringes or you like, what's, how do you go about selecting the amount that you need? For the application, sure. Uh, so, so both Vetagel and CHG, CHG being Cresselon's minor bleeding product for humans, uh, that uh, those two products have a five milliliter syringe, um, and that syringe size was was selected for the Vetagel market for the animal health market, uh, where we wanted is one syringe that can handle about ninety nine percent of things that come into the average vet clinic, and so you can. With good surgical technique, you can stop a gunshot wound. But in cases where you have the more average type of bleed, like a liver biopsy or something else like that, uh, that size is more than adequate to cover the needs of a surgeon in those cases. Now, what I will say is that the next product that's in development is called TraumaGel, uh, which is uh, being investigated for use right now in humans uh, for moderate to severe external bleeding. Uh, so think traumatic injuries like gunshot wounds, stabbings, motor vehicle accidents. Uh, and that product is a 30 milliliter product 
uh, because that's designed for the biggest bleeds that are out there and is being designed to be used by individuals that may not have surgical training. Uh, so think medics and EMTs. And, uh, and so what you want to do is give them enough volume to be able to get product where it needs to go always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see. And um, is uh, is there then like any any risks that are associated with uh, the application of that gel? I mean, be it in animals or in humans that you've observed or are there any contraindications for it? So so on, on Vetagel, we, we have... We have no contraindications except uh, against injecting it directly into a blood vessel, uh, which for <laughs> obvious reasons would be uh, highly uh, inadvisable. Uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, we're very lucky that these these materials, uh, the, the novelty in Vetagel is not in the raw material that we use. The two polymers have been used for nearly a century each in the medical device industry. Uh, it's just the way that we put them together, the, the way that we allow them to have the efficacy. Um, and, and so the safety profile of this material is well understood. And, and thankfully, we, we really, and outside of any of the typical risks that you see in these types of medical devices, that there, there's nothing unusual uh, or, or nothing particularly unsafe about the product. Hmm. Yeah. So virtually, like it could be, I mean, the M would be to you have it compatible with every human, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So as I was like preparing, Preparing the recording, I, I listened to the to the Medsider podcast episode um, where you and Scott Nelson discuss your your adventure at Crystalline. Um, I, I will put actually the, the the link in the show notes. W- one thing that I found very interesting um, is the overall strategy and approach to getting this hemostatic gel to be used in humans, which is the case now with the first indication that you mentioned. Um, where you actually started first with a veterinary indication for your initial product. At the same time, investing heavily in manufacturing to have your own manufacturing site with the same quality standards as if you were manufacturing the solution for human use, and then getting the approvals for using humans with indications of increasing order of severity, uh, if I understood correctly. And I assume this plan was not defined from the get-go when you created the company and actually makes a lot of sense in, in retrospect. But could you tell us about you know how this overall strategy unfolded over the last few years? Um, yeah, to give us some some background there. Yeah, of course. So, so interestingly, I mean, Crestlon, we've been around for thirteen years, um, and the path of least regulation strategy, uh, meaning our, our idea to go animal health first, came about in twenty twelve, um, and so it was fairly early on in the in the process, and and we we were dealing with a number of challenges uh, at the time. Be, and the primary challenge being that we were young, then uh, it's very unlikely that VCs would want to invest a lot of money in a bunch of kids to to bring products through an FDA process. And, and so, at the time when we founded the the company, Trauma Gel was the idea. It wasn't Better Gel at that point. And so, the the idea was to make something that could work on the largest of bleeds. And we weren't really looking at the surgical hemostasis market. And in 2012. Hurricane Sandy hit the New York area, and as as New Yorkers, we were all affected by it. But a friend of mine at the time uh, was working for a zoo, and that zoo, in the storm, ended up having an animal that died uh, because of no other reason than they didn't have a hemostatic that could control the type of bleeding. A wall had collapsed and created an injury, and so he came back to me and said, "Listen, uh, I, I know we're looking at the at the defense market." For, for a first customer, but I see this massive need in animal health, and it turns out that there's nothing here, and so we should look at it. And so later that year in 2012, 
my team and I, we signed up for the American Veterinary Medical Association conference, the, the AVMA conference. And we flew out there, we set up a little booth, and uh, we had over 300 customers uh, or, or potential vets who came up to us and said, we love this. If you could bring this to market, we'd definitely buy it. And so with that, Vetagel was born. And we started putting that strategy together and we realized that we could, and effectively what we're doing today, which is that Vetagel, because it's a broad indication veterinary device, it allows us to work in just about any indication that we can imagine in the human space. And so we can we can do neurosurgery and spine surgery. We can help paralyzed animals be able to walk again by shortening their procedures times. Uh, we can work in dentistry. We can work in orthopedic medicine. We can walk in, work in soft tissue surgery. And when you're removing tumors from the liver or spleen of a dog that, that otherwise uh, wouldn't be able to undergo that surgery. Uh, and so we get this broad spectrum of use case. Uh, and I mean, all of it came from this idea that the... Uh, unfortunate events of Hurricane Sandy spurred. Yeah, I mean, the, the potential is, is huge, as you mentioned. But like I was thinking, you know, in hindsight, like I, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I haven't seen like a lot of other, you know, companies either in medtech or, yeah, yeah, in medtech in general, like, you know, having that approach where you say, let's go first into animal indications and then we try to go to humans. Like, yeah, sometimes they, you know, you have companies where maybe it's more in digital health, like in the space where I work, where you have companies launching products that are more for like, you know, general wellness that don't have any medical claim that they're able to generate revenue and then, you know, gather funds to, to potentially fund like a medical application down the line. So I think that's that's quite interesting. And could you could you also mention a bit about the, the manufacturing side? Because um, I think there's also like an interesting story as to how you, you know, selected the place where the company um, um, is, is, is active now, how you selected the, the site and how you grew it um, to, to you make it fit for purpose for, you know, when, when, when the, um, the indications for human use will be approved. Definitely. And so today, Crestalon operates out of uh, 33,000 square feet of sterile production, uh, which are vaccine grade, completely sterile clean rooms. Uh, and we're the only manufacturer of that type in the five boroughs of New York. So that's something we're very proud of. Uh, Pfizer had a manufacturing site here in Brooklyn on Flushing Avenue. Uh, they shut that down in the early 2000s. And then since Pfizer shut that plant down, uh, we're the first manufacturer to open up of this type back in New York. And, and as, as a New Yorker, that's something that, that I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, but that being said, uh, we, we weren't always a manufacturer. Uh, and, and my advice to new entrepreneurs is that uh, you should only do this out of necessity uh, or, or yeah. once you feel <laughs> revenues. Uh, we really, uh, in the beginning, we weren't intending to manufacture at all. Um, and, and so the, the plan was to follow more of a traditional biotech route, which was to contract manufacturing out to a partner and, uh, and not have to deal with any of that. Uh, but it turns out that our gel uh, was so complicated in the way that it needed to be manufactured that no one could do it in the proper way at, at the level of quality that we needed it to be at. And so as a result, we were left with a choice, which was either shut down the business or do it ourselves. And we, we chose to do it ourselves. And so we started with our first manufacturing site, actually in an old 1930 schoolhouse that we were able to get on Craigslist in Brooklyn. Craigslist. Uh, and, and still today, our, we, we, have, we have labs and offices working out at that site. Uh, it became pretty clear 
as we were growing, that that also wasn't sustainable. And so as the business grew, uh, we ended up investing in a, a very large site to be able to do things, quote, the right way and, and to the level uh, expected by, by pharmaceutical companies. Um, and so uh, that was difficult in New York because this was the first clean room of its type that had to be commissioned using modern building codes and standards and fire regulations and so on. And, and so it, it took nearly four years in construction commissioning and validation uh, from having the idea to being able to to get something that was usable and, and where we can launch. And so we started that process of construction in Brooklyn in 2016, uh, and we finally launched Vetagel in mid-2020. Wow. No, that's incredible. And I, I was just wondering, like, how do you did you have like you know some? Did you have to recruit someone for you know establishing this new manufacturing site? Like how do you or how do you go into such a big project when you're you were still like a fairly small group of people, I guess, in the company? Definitely. So I, um, one thing I've always known as a CEO is that my my job is to know where the company needs to go uh, and know that I need to bring in people who know more than me in order to get there. And so we were very lucky to have assembled a team of individuals with experience in doing exactly this. And, and so the the great thing about uh, these types of problems are that uh, even though these are novel problems, they're problems that have been solved somewhere else in the world before. And it's not our job to reinvent the wheel if we don't need to. Um, and so we, we brought in a team of individuals who, who had commissioned facilities like this uh, and uh, a number of groups of consultants as well to help. And we were able to, to build a group of people that brought us over the finish line. Yeah, I see. And maybe back to the the, the way that the, the product is manufactured. I mean, to the extent possible, you can share. Like, what makes it difficult to? Um, you were you were mentioning that it was it was hard to actually combine these two polymers and come up with um, a working um, sort of like formulation. Um, is there something that make it you know unstable or like what what from the manufacturing perspective? How 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 what was the challenge? Sure. So, so Vetagel is uh, is very highly viscous. Uh, it's about the same viscosity as hummus. Um, and so uh, usually when you make a vaccine, you, um, well, so usually with medical devices, let, let me start there, you make the device in a clean but not sterile environment, and then you gamma irradiate. Yeah, so you, you, uh, you use gamma radiation to sterilize that device. But if you irradiate Vetagel, you end up with Vetagel that doesn't work, and that, that doesn't help <laughs> patients very much. Uh, and so the only thing, if that doesn't work, that you can do is you can make it in a sterile environment uh, where uh, you sterilize all of the equipment, you sterilize all of your raw materials, and you make it in a perfectly sterile space. But most vaccine plants are used to handling things that are about the viscosity of water, not hummus. And, and so I'm drastically oversimplifying, uh, but... The point is that there are lots of hummus manufacturers in the world and lots of vaccine manufacturers in the world, uh, but no one uh, that was bright enough or, or maybe dumb enough to try to do the two together. <laughs> uh, and so we ended up having to customize just about every bit of that process because the, the typical techniques that you use, like sterile filtration, don't work on something as viscous as hummus. And so you need to custom design everything in order to in order to get this done. Yeah, I see. No, no thanks for sharing. That's, that's very interesting. You mentioned that there would be a next indication on the use the, for trauma trauma care use in humans. Um, how far are you in the development of, of that, or when when do you foresee this to be available? 
Sure. So, so that that product, Tramagel, is currently under evaluation by the FDA. Okay. Uh, and and so we're anticipating launching it mid next year, uh, assuming that it's cleared by the FDA. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's fairly soon. All right. Um, yeah. So I I understand that that's the that's basically the the main focus at at the moment. You know, having having launched for for the human use with the broadest set of indications possible. Um, there, there's a lot of things that are happening in the in the field of tissue engineering at the moment which I find uh, very fascinating. There's one company, for example, um, called Cutis. I don't know if I, if I pronounce it uh, perfectly, but they're actually based in Zurich, where I live. Um, and they are developing a new type of skin graft, which derives from a small sample of skin that is grown in the lab, um, expanded, and then crafted back to the same patient um, with the ability to, to actually grow with the person, limits carrying, and, and reduce follow-up corrective surgeries. Um, for patients that suffer basically severe burns or skin cancer or any other condition with a very dramatic impact on the skin, it could be actually a, a game changer. And I'd love to discuss actually with the founders on the podcast, maybe one day, um, this example, like set aside and thinking about the, the very long term with Crescentland, do you see the company going into other types of solutions beyond uh, hemostatics? Is there any other application you foresee that you would like to explore as a company at some point? Definitely. And, and so I, I'm a strong believer that a one product company isn't quite a company. <laughs> and so uh, in order for Crestlon to survive in the long term, even if we have the best technology in the world or, or the most interesting product, we need to diversify. We need to be able to take this platform that we've built and leverage that to get into wound care in general. Um, and okay. so uh, while I can't exactly disclose exactly course, what we're looking course. into, <laughs> uh, I, my my team has a number of projects that are going on uh, through the entire field of wound care. Um, and, and so I think within biosurgery, uh, meaning providing tools that allow surgeons to do their jobs better and delivering materials that work with the patient, right? And instead of hijacking the biochemistry, it allows that patient's biochemistry to just do what they do without interference. And uh, th there's a lot of opportunity in that space, in my opinion, and uh, it's something that, that my team is uniquely positioned to be able to work on. That's super exciting. And so you mentioned already that, you know, the, the company is 13 years old this year. Um, I think there's a huge potential. Um, and I guess your vision is very, very long-term, right? Like, I mean, I don't think that your approach is like, you know, maybe what we see in digital health again, where you aim to scale things quite rapidly, like a lot of digital companies are doing, then you end, you kind of like aiming for an exit at some point. But in your case, I have the impression like it's a much more like you want to establish a business that is sustainable on the very long term. Um, is that is that really your, your, your vision and your approach to it? Exactly. The goal with Cresselon is to build Cresselon as if we're going to become a large company. And what I will say is that it's, uh, it would be irresponsible to say that that M and A is not an option, right? Because most yeah. most biotech or most life sciences companies that are successful end in M and A uh, or being purchased by by somebody else. Uh, and so, uh, but in my opinion, the best way to create a responsible company uh, for our customers, for our patients, for our, our stakeholders. Uh, is not to build towards exit, but it's to build a verticalized business that is self-sufficient. And if at the end of the day, uh, we build ourselves aligned with the incentives and goals and vision of a larger business, then so be it. Uh, but 
On the other hand, uh, if Cresselon uh, decides to stay independent, uh, then we have all of those resources at our hands. That's 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 really good to hear. And um, at the moment, how many people are in, are in the team working for Cresselon? Uh, we have about seventy-five employees here in New York. Seventy-five employees. Interesting. That's that doesn't sound like a lot for you know occupying a thirty thousand square meter <laughs> manufacturing site. Uh, we we are very uh, we're very lean, and, and what I'll say <laughs> it, it's, it's thirty thousand yeah. square feet, uh, which is only three thousand square meters. Yeah, and, yeah. And so but it, still, it uh, still. Uh, but still we um, and I I always tell my team uh, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. Uh, but and so it it's uh, uh, well we we do a lot for for only a seventy plus person organization. <laughs> that's great. That's a great mindset. Um, no, I mean we, we we've covered a lot of uh, a lot of elements. You've explained us very well how the product works, uh, what's the mechanism behind it. I think that's the that's a very interesting part, you know, to see that you are able to control bleeding in seconds. And I would invite you know every listener to look at the videos. You also did a couple of very good TED talks um, that explain that in quite the nice details that I would also add in the in the show notes. Um, but yeah, like, you know, this, to me, it's very interesting. And I would like to see probably it in my own eyes at some point to see how it works, because it really looks like you apply some kind of, yeah, look, some kind of like paste and then you remove it afterwards. And then the, there's no more blood flowing out. And you already have like the first, um, the first steps of the, 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 the scarring process engaged. Um, so it's really like a very catalyzing, um, uh, reaction in a way. So that, that's super interesting. And, um, and I'm, yeah, really crossing fingers for the for the validation from the FDA and that you guys can, um, according to plan, have the launch for the the traumatic indication um, next year. Maybe um, I mean actually at the at the end of each episode, I, I ask a couple of recurring questions to the guest. Um, the first one um, actually maybe touched on some elements in that regard, but what resources would you recommend us to to check out in in order to know more about? The field in which we evolve, be it books, publications, websites, anything. I mean, so, so MedDevice is, and so I, I would say follow the literature closely. Yeah, uh, there's there are a lot of academic labs that are doing really amazing things. I I came out of NYU, uh, Tannen School of Engineering. There's a lot of interesting work being done there. Uh, as as a high school student, I, I spent some time at Columbia University's tissue engineering labs and. Uh, and, and that's where a lot of these ideas start. And uh, the, yeah. the unfortunate thing, or maybe the fortunate thing about life sciences is that when you see it show up in research, it is likely 10, 15, 20 years away from, from being used in a patient. And so anyone who's really interested in learning the cutting edge, uh, sometimes you have to go to to the literature in, in order to find it. Did you, did you follow that approach actually when you started with the initial formulation? Like, did you? So, so of course. I mean, you you always you always do a, you always do a lit review, and and and, and you, you look at you know what's being done, and most importantly, what's been tried and hasn't worked, uh, because sometimes it's not as much to discourage you can do yourself, a lot of time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's to not exactly fall into hurdles where someone else has has come before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a very very helpful advice. Um, could you share with us uh, an anecdote from your work at Cresselin? that made you realize the, the impact that you were having on, on patients' lives. And here, I, I, I mean humans, even if you already mentioned like 45,000 lives of animals um, that we also like very much. Um, but yeah, any anecdote you would like to to share with the audience? Sure. I'll, 
So I'll talk about an anecdote where, where the bleed wasn't that big, uh, but it, it underscored the the value of a product like this. Because I mean, I, I can talk about, we, we've had gunshot wounds that this has been used in, yeah. in dogs. It's, and, it's pretty hardcore. Uh, and, and motor vehicle accidents that, that that have had aortic lacerations that are big bleeds that were stopped with this product. But you, you, could, you can see those videos online. Uh, and so uh, one of the most striking cases that, that was brought to my attention was that uh, in in the Midwest uh, of, of the U.S., there's a there's a clinic that specializes specifically in cats that are FIV positive, and, and FIV is HIV, but for for cats. Uh, and the challenge is when you have patients that are late stage FIV positive, so meaning in stage three or stage four uh, of FIV, uh, they have a number of complications, and, and uh, the main complication is that you get this uh, their their teeth decay. Um, and so uh, they're in a lot of pain and because of the pain, they can't eat. Uh, but if you pull the teeth, there's so much bleeding that they're so fragile that if you put them under anesthesia, because of the blood loss, because of the time under anesthesia and the recovery time, the patient just can't survive that type of uh, uh, type of surgery. And, and so these patients are unfortunately unable to be operated on and, and, and most in most cases need to be euthanized. And so we partnered with a with a doctor uh, that was out in uh, out in Oklahoma, uh, and what they realized is that when you have these cats, that even though the bleeding when you pull these teeth under anesthesia is minimal, uh, you could actually do it in such a rapid time that not only can you do these surgeries for the first time in these patients and giving them some semblance of normalcy back to their lives. Uh, but you can also do it in such a way where they recover so quickly, they can be sent home the same day. They don't even need to be observed overnight. Uh, and so it's just really an amazing way to underscore how it's not about stopping the biggest bleeds. It's about the impact that you have to that patient. And really, it truly is the less time that that patient spends on a table, on an operating table, uh, the better the outcome is for that patient. Uh, it, for story. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. No, that's that, that's impressive. So in you know in each episode, I I am very very grateful again for for your time. I mentioned it before we started the recording, but Joe, but I mean you're obviously very very busy and um, taking the time to talk with me. Um, in every episode, you know I, I I really find a lot of inspiration in the guests that I have the, the privilege of hosting in, on on the podcast, and uh, you're certainly no different in in that regard. There are um, certainly other figures that you look up to yourself, um, also advancing medical progress. If you would recommend one of them as a potential guest for the show, um, who would that be and why would you recommend her or, or him? So, so one, of the, one of the med device companies that I've been following lately uh, is called Psionic. And the, the founder is Adil Akhtar. And uh, what Adil's working on is a highly advanced prosthesis uh, so it, it's basically a hand that can give you tactile feedback, uh, or oh, wow. a prosthetic hand that can give you tactile feedback. And so it's uh, it's super cool. He also started it as a uh, at, while he was at a university, um, and and so uh, I, I'm really uh, really excited about the work that they're doing. Incredible! Did they start that recently, or like a or? I uh, and so I. What I'll say is it might be best if you ask him directly. So I, <laughs> I, but he's been working on it for some time, and uh, but they're uh, but they they've been growing pretty significantly recently. That's great. Do you think you could put us in touch? Of course. Yeah, I'm more than happy to make the introduction. 
that would be that would be awesome no thank you thank you again so much joe um i learned a lot i hope a lot of listeners will enjoy um, our discussion i'm sure there's a lot of value in uh, in many things of that that you shared um to the listeners who are still with us thank you so much for joining and for your valuable time listening to our conversation with joe really really hope you, you liked it i i keep receiving a lot of feedback and and guest suggestions for the show and i'm forever grateful for that it's it's really thanks to to you guys and to the amazing people that i get to to meet through the podcast don't forget to subscribe to it and to leave a five-star review on your preferred streaming platform it really helps me a lot driving the podcast forward uh, it's not my daily job we also have a dedicated linkedin page where you can follow your, our activities as well as website that i invite you to check out the website is simply impulsepodcast.com um, you will find there the podcast newsletter as well that was launched a few weeks back where you can subscribe to stay posted on, on the latest episodes and the latest in medical technology. Thanks again for your time and support and see you in the next one. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. If you liked it, don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. I would be extremely grateful if you could leave a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions or suggest potential guests. Thanks a lot and see you in the next one.